best entrepreneurs in the world get told no over and over and over again. I didn't know how I was going to make it work, but I was damn determined I was going to make it work. Not realizing how much better television was going to make me at my job. I thought all you needed was the idea and then you were rich. Welcome to the Blue Collar Business School Podcast. Welcome back to the Blue Collar Business School Podcast. My name is, of course, Julian Clayton. And thanks, as always, for all the engagement uh, week over week. Uh, please continue to review and uh, rate the podcast if you feel so inclined. Uh, it's been an interesting week. Had a lot of conversations, uh, both in email and uh, over the phone. Uh, talked to my good friend Anthony, who is starting his bespoke hat company. Really looking forward to... Uh, seeing some of the great stuff coming out of that. He's a pretty talented young man. Uh, another friend who's starting out with uh, some CS software, customer success software, and uh, really excited to see what they bring to the market. And I want to hear from you guys. So if you've got an interesting project or an interesting story you think might be a fit for the podcast, would love to hear from you. Please email me at julian at bluecollar.business. That is J-U-L-I-A-N at bluecollar.business. This week's episode is a special one to me because it's with my good friend Doug Chambers. The topic of the week is fundraising and I could not think of a better person to tell that story than Doug. He doesn't exactly uh, come from a place where you think he might to be the uh, fundraising champion that he is. Doug comes from the construction industry just like me. He was an MEP project manager uh, not too long before I met him, uh, he was also my CEO at FieldLens. Doug just has a natural knack for it, and I really think you're going to enjoy his story. Uh, I mean, well, that process lasted, I'm actually trying to think back as to how long it lasted, something like, I don't know, two years, I think, um, started to talk to people about the ideas behind FieldLens in 2010, definitely probably early 2010, or at least by summer of 2010, and didn't raise a dime until November 30th, 2011. So I would call it 15 months of, and, and to be clear, 15 months, 14 of which getting like the snot beat out of us. Um, and then a month where a couple of people said yes. And then it like, and then, and then also to be clear, our first round of financing for Field Lens was $300,000, which seemed like $300 million at the time. It's so long ago now. It's actually crazy to think about it. it's a decade ago, but I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to pitch. I didn't know how to put together a deck. I didn't know how to pitch that deck. I didn't know anything about like the common questions that any reasonable investor would ask about like total addressable market, i.e. how much money could you make if your business sold to every customer it could have. Literally, like I was just a guy who worked on a construction site with an idea. And to be clear, I was a guy who worked as a project manager on a construction site and I was around some, you know, fairly sophisticated, you know, quote unquote business people. But I, my job was in construction as, as a project manager. So I, I knew nothing. So the process of going from zero to $300,000 was like a year of education. I went to um, a ton of scammy, uh, like meetups essentially, which were intended to be matchmaking between an entrepreneur and venture capitalists. And it was never really true. Those were actually like for the most, for more often than not, like money making endeavors um, for the uh, for the organizer organizer of the event. But still, they were at bats. Um, probably the first time that I did a pitch, 
where I both got the snot beat out of me, but I actually got some traction was in what was in front of a group. I would assume this would have been the summer of 2011. It was in front of a group called the New York Angels, which is a syndicate of angel investors in New York City. And they do events every quarter or so. And I don't remember the the, the process by which we, we, were, we were accepted to pitch, pitch, but I got in front of this group. And, you know, again, 2011, talking about using cell phone, mobile app for all the processes associated with managing a construction project. Like people thought I was out of my mind. Can yeah. I curse on this? Do you want me to curse on this? Yeah, yeah. You, you can do whatever you want. Just, just so, pe- so people thought I was out of my fucking mind. And, but I blew them away with a pitch. And it was the first time where I like, I didn't know what I was doing, but I just got out there. And Julian, you've seen me do this before, but I got up there and there were like 30 or 40 people in the room. And they, I saw people just like, I saw them when I had them. And they were like, like people were like leaning back, like, and then leaning forward. And then at the very end, and the very end, it was probably five minutes at that, someone asked me how much I was raising. And I said, $2.5 million. And they laughed me out of the fucking room. Like nobody's investing $2.5 million in your nascent idea at this point. And it was all these questions around like, what could you do for a hundred grand or 300 grand or 500 grand? And, um, and it was funny. There was actually one guy who I don't remember anymore. I don't remember his name anymore, but there was one guy who was like, who actually stood up and was like, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe this concept of an MVP doesn't actually make sense when you're trying to like reinvent an entire industry or reinvent an entire process. And he actually now in retrospect, he was both right and wrong about that. There's always an MVP. There's always something that you need to do to get out there to like test your assumptions and learn from them and not build too much to realize that you're wrong. But at the same time, the venture capital business anyway, and I guess the, generally speaking, like the investor mindset is often one of, um, I guess, both matchmaking and like pattern matching is the right word. So, and the pattern matching that is so consistent among venture capital is raise less, do less, test, et cetera. And that isn't the same if you're building like, I don't know, a photo sharing app back then, which Instagram, Instagram was being created at the same time as well. They did slightly better than us, you know, or, uh, or, or an app that was intended to be significantly more inclusive from a process perspective, you know, in heavy industry, et cetera. But, but anyway, um, we, so that first, so, so that happened that summer, continued to get beat up for, uh, across lots of different meetings. And then I'll, I'll never forget the meeting with the first professional investor where someone said yes, which was a guy named Pedro who's good friend of mine today. He was really young at the time. Uh, and, I, and we knew that, but, but, but he was also, you know, a VC and he was investing in technology in New York city. And it was like a real, it was a real meeting and it was a real thing. And I remember like when he said, yes, he was like, and then he said, yes, I want, I, I want to do this. And then he looked at a spreadsheet. He was like, well, and like we were crestfalling for a moment as he was looking at the spreadsheet. What's on that spreadsheet? Like what's going to happen here? And then he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was for $150,000. But that $150,000 enabled us to then go to our friends and family, literally our friends and family, who were going to write checks basically regardless, but we weren't going to take their money unless we knew that there was enough money to actually make any level of progress. But that $150,000 allowed us to go round up the $10,000 checks and the $15,000 checks and the $20,000 checks from our friends and family. And we had $300,000. And it was enough to start. And we certainly didn't get a viable MVP built for that $300,000. And we really couldn't, there was no like taking a breath. Like the fundraising process continued the moment after that $300,000 was in the bank. And so like the next round of investment actually was one of the people that left me out of the room. So nine months later or so, we raised like our first real round of 1.5 million. 
um, that was read, led, excuse me, by a, a firm at the time that was called High Peaks Venture Partners, is now called Primary Venture Partners by a guy named Brad Sverluga, who's also still a friend of mine. He had said no right around, when, right, right, right before Pedro saying yes, but he followed our progress, um, saw how persistent we were, and 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 led that round in that summer. In terms of like how our perspective around like or my perspective around what type of investors to talk to or what type of money to chase. I'll be honest and say that like in the software as a service business, particularly in New York, in the early part of the last of this last decade, which again sounds weird to say, but it's true. The investors were all pretty similar. And it's not that and and just speaking frankly, we were never a business that was so lights out way ahead of both our competition and or other SaaS, emerging SaaS businesses, we never had our pick of the litter. So for us, it was largely around like who had conviction in us as a team, who treated us <laughs> humanely through the process. Those were definitely the folks that we wanted to work with. And so, so that culminated, I guess, with our next like major round, which was in 2014. So it would have been two years later. And that was a, an $8 million financing led by a firm called OpenView Venture Partners out of Boston. They were investing in us in an atypical manner. They were and are traditionally investors that invest in companies that had at least a couple of million dollars in annual recurring revenue. We did not. We were still very early. We were just coming out of a beta process, a long beta process as we figured out what the hell we were doing. But they were so excited about the space, specifically, I guess, real estate. Uh, more holistically, but the idea of technology, you know, out in the field, technology, you know, at, not not just servicing the knowledge worker, but technology servicing the the, the more of a blue collar type of customer and a big big heavy industry. And they were very excited about that, and they decided that they wanted in into Field Lens, uh, you know, regardless of where we were from a from a revenue perspective. There's good and bad with that. So I guess like you know for for folks that are thinking about trying to raise money, et cetera, like that's an important distinction here. Like if I could do it all over again, while they were great investors, good people, incredibly supportive of the team, the company, et cetera, they weren't the right investor at the right time because they were an investor that understands how to take a business that has found what's called product market fit, that has clearly like figured it out. This is the thing that the customer wants and will pay for, and that it is scaling from a revenue perspective. And how do we make it scale much faster? That's when an investor like OpenView, based on their historical performance and the companies they've worked with, that's when they excel is to come in and help companies build that sales and marketing program. We weren't there yet. And so we had a mismatch from, from the very beginning. Um, you know, They knew we weren't there yet. But as I said earlier, investors, they kind of have to pattern match. They're looking at tons of companies, uh, tons and tons and tons and tons of companies. And they're narrowing that down to maybe 20 that they'll make an investment in. And then of those 20... You know, they've of the companies they've invested in where it's worked. There's been certain things that have worked, and they try to replicate those things from a su support perspective. But that doesn't necessarily that model really breaks down if you have an anomaly company, i.e., a company that is much earlier in the process of growing and scaling, like we were. So what that resulted in is trying to like cram in a sales and marketing program for a company that should have been focused, focused, focused on still iterating on the product. So that was a huge lesson for me um, and will continue to be a lesson for me as I raise money for additional companies and build additional companies, which is that there is a place in time for investors and the money is not just the money because with the money will typically come some level of activism. And I don't mean that in, in a negative way, 
but um, there's very few entities out there that are going to invest in early stage companies and take a significant percentage of the company and then not also take a significant percentage of the mind share uh, of the decisions that are made both in the boardroom and out of that boardroom. Perhaps it wasn't a learning at the time, but it is certainly a learning now. You, you have to make sure that you're aligned with an investor, both in the perspective of what does the next year look like? Where are we today? Where are we trying to go? What does the what you know? What will the trajectory of the company be that we're trying to create? But but most specifically, what are the activities that we can work on together, or that we can work on as a company that you can be supportive of? We have to be really aligned around that. That's a conversation that I think is really really important for anyone that is raising money to have with an investor. If the investor is ready to write a check, good. You've accomplished the almost impossible, literally. But you're not done with vetting that scenario necessarily until you've had the conversations around, again, this alignment with respect to like, where is the company really? And yeah, sure. There's certain scenarios where maybe you have that conversation after the check is in the bank, so to speak. Certainly there's, you know, the process of pitching is all about, you know, kind of the courting process and and et cetera. But once you're on that honeymoon anyway, it's time to get real about where you are and certainly time to, 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 if you had, if you didn't drive that alignment prior to, to cashing the, the, the so-called check, you'd better drive that alignment pretty quickly, or you're going to find yourself in a situation where you know expectations are totally misaligned. You do not want to be there at any point in your business. Go back to that first round. What do you think it was? What did you change? Was it just the the light in the room was perfect, or or did you actually change your process when you got that first yes from Pedro? Yeah, I, it's probably less about a change in process, and it's more just about like. I mean, I'm doing it again right now. We're building another company right now. I'm raising capital for that company right now. And you kind of, I mean, I guess there are scenarios where you can like, you know, you and whomever else you're working on the organization with can kind of, you know, put your heads together for X amount of months or years or whatever it is, figure out what it is that you're trying to create and like go pitch an investor and they're in. I have got to imagine that that is like an incredibly small percentage of times that that actually happens. Like you got to start getting hit with questions that you hadn't thought of and that's going to help you refine what you're doing, refine your approach. You're going to hear about competitors through those conversations. It's almost impossible not to. Like if you don't hear about a single competitor or a competitive scenario that's floating out there relative to what you're pitching and you're pitching for months, that's a signal right there. Like none of us are that smart. If there's a market need for a thing, somebody else is working on it. So anyway, with all of that information, and all that, you know, as I joked, like getting your butt kicked with all of that should come the ability to iterate and the ability to like, but not only change the pitch, but actually change the model, change what you're thinking about doing. And so like, you kind of have to go through that process to get to a yes, I think. For me at the time, it was certainly, (laughs) it's kind of happening again as well. Like you always have these big visions of how much capital you need because you have to do all these amazing things. I think a lot of it is is going through the process of like recognizing and realizing that you can do more with less and then, you know, adjusting your ask as such. And then actually what you really, what you find, and maybe this is more related to the fact that it's my second go around, but I'm actually now finding that like, when you really start to ask for what is the right, like kind of minimum amount of money you need to make enough progress, people start offering you more. <laughs> But that's where you want to be, right? And and I don't, I, I as I said earlier, I don't think you can get there on your first conversation because there's just too much information out there 
that is in other people's heads, especially investors who are having this conversation a million times with other entrepreneurs, whether they're in your space or not, you got you to gotta do the fact finding and the fact finding comes through the pitching process and getting your butt kicked. So I think that's, yeah. What you're describing is the opportunity to get out there and educate yourself in the moment, kind of learning on stage for lack of a better way to say it, or over prepping and missing an opportunity. But that learning on the job has to be a big kick in the gut, like on a regular basis. I'm sure as you look back on that, those experiences probably help the the current rounds or the current fundraising that you're doing not you know, not hurt quite so bad when you're in those moments. Yeah, you definitely get ping ponged around, and if you don't have the self control or the self discipline as both both as an individual and hopefully as a team to recognize that it's just one person's feedback, um, you can definitely find yourself like you know like well this is a podcast so you can't see what I'm doing with my hands but just imagine like literally a game of pong where you're going back and forth back and forth back and forth but even that back and forth back and forth action if you're if you're disciplined about it it should actually result in a straight line eventually as long as you're making progress with your back and forth back and forth and and again tough to visualize but you know in the moment and when i say the moment almost like the 24 hour moment i definitely remember walking out of a pitch or a meeting having gotten some level of feedback that says you should do blah, blah, blah. And then spinning like a motherfucker on that for like 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever. And then literally sleeping on it and waking up and being like, wait a minute. Like what are the pieces of that, that I can cherry pick to bring back into the story here. And when I say story, to be clear, I don't mean just the pitching story. I actually mean like, what are we doing? What are we building, et cetera. But yeah, that is something to look out for, for sure. I think sales meetings are similar. I mean, raising money and selling something is the same thing. Like you're selling your company, you're selling you, um, no different than selling a product. So there's like, there's never too early a sales meeting. I learned that the hard way as well. And to your point, like, you have to take all the feedback that you get in those meetings, and then you've got to be really, really disciplined about what you throw out, what do you keep. Otherwise, the, the you know the reactionary nature will it'll make it really difficult to find that straight line. In addition to that, there's the emotionality of all this as well. <laughs> like you cannot it and it's hard, but like it isn't about you. It isn't about you. And if it is about you, fuck the person you pitched. Honestly, like. You, you you have to separate, you have to find a way to separate the emotionality of being told no uh, with respect to your own self-worth, which is, to be clear, super hard, not easy, but it's just a numbers game. Like the best entrepreneurs in the world get told no over and over and over again for a variety of reasons. One, because maybe they're on the beginning of their ping pong journey. They haven't figured it out yet. Two, because there's just not a fit for the investor. These investors don't just invest in anything. Like they invest in what they know. So like there are a million reasons that you will be told no that have nothing to do with you. In fact, all of the reasons typically have nothing to do with you. If you're a real fucking asshole, you're really stupid, you're not going to raise money. It is about you. Sorry. But like for the most part, if you get told no through the process, it's not about you. What do you think about Brad in particular, right? What do you think changed for him other than, you know, you had gotten from A to B with you know, something, you know, what, what, that's, what that's triggered? Actually, that, that's it. That's what changed. You got that's from it. Yeah. You just had you Most just people, had more, more things for him to look at, like fit. You know, you had product for him to see. Progress. 
Yeah. Like ultimately, you know, most people at the early stages of a business are investing in, I would say, three things, maybe four. Um, I well, I'll say I'll combine one of them: idea slash market. This is not in. This is not actually in the right order. I don't think, but whatever. It's idea slash market. Like, you know, you have a great idea. There's a big market. Okay, like that's kind of you need those things, right? The entrepreneur. Who are you? Are you credible? Are you smart? Do you understand the market? Like, do I have faith that you can actually do this? Right. <laughs> actually, it's those two things that you're really investing in, and so ultimately. When an investment fails to happen at the early stages, if the first box is checked around the idea in the market, but man, it seems hard. This guy's pretty compelling or this girl's pretty compelling, but man, this seems hard. I'll just wait. See how they do. If they're still around in six months, that's interesting. Because most of the time that people come into my, 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 my office, I'm with my VC hat on here. Most of the time that people come into my office... Even if they check most of those boxes, if they can't figure out how to raise that first tranche of capital or get that first customer or whatever, they sort of disappear in six months. We didn't disappear. We were still around. Before we move to the last round, I want to talk about how you kind of managed your role you know, in, in, in regards to what you were specifically responsible for and how you handled that both internally and externally. Because you know, in, the, in, in that first round, it's just you and two other guys and you guys are just trying to figure everything out. But with that second round, there was a little more to it by then. And it's not just the potential investors that you're trying to convince. Now you're trying to convince the people that are working in the room with you every day who are not people that you've known forever and can definitely go add value elsewhere if they think this ship is going nowhere. How do you manage both sides of that seesaw conversation where you yourself are lacking confidence in, in you know, a particular moment, but you yeah. can't, you can't let them see you sweat? Yeah, it's um, really hard. And what I would say, frankly, like, I think I did a mediocre job of it. I did definitely let people see me sweat. And largely, this is all uh, a case of me, like, A, not having the confidence or the ability to put people in positions of authority early on in the process of building the company and giving them more responsibility or letting them take more responsibility uh, so that I could focus on really what my job was at the time, which more than anything was making sure the company was well capitalized. I can only say that like with the business that I'm working on now, there's a significantly better division of duties amongst myself and another, actually two co three co-founders, excuse me. I'm not trying to do everything. Because you can't do everything and do it well. Uh, and I definitely did not. So like in that scenario with FieldLens, what I should have been doing was relying more on team members with respect to everything uh, related to the creation of the company and the product and the sales and marketing program, et cetera. Um, I should have, frankly, been more confident with my ability to recruit leaders in at an earlier stage to do so, which would have freed me to really focus on investor relationships, capitalizing the company, et cetera. But I didn't do that because I didn't know. I just want to cut in here and say it's worth mentioning that Doug actually did a much better job of this than he's referencing. In fact, he was so convincing that just before that second round, he met me for coffee one afternoon and convinced me, someone who had never considered the startup life, to sell two companies and join him as his VP of product. 
And he did that because the idea was solid, but also because he was so passionate about it. It was Doug's passion and dedication to solving the problem that Field Lens was built to solve that brought that entire team together. I mean, these things are always, to some extent, like, they are always like fly by the seat of the pants or the stupid saying of like, you know, you're, 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 you're flying a plane at 30,000 feet that you're still putting together and all, all those things, like those are all true. But having an infrastructure around the company or in the company that understands roles and responsibilities, provides true, like truly delegates those roles and responsibilities and doesn't have an expectation that the CEO is like responsible for everything. Because I, I mean, this is maybe a more like generalistic conversation. I just think like, the role of CEO as, as currently defined over the last, I don't know how many years, particularly in like tech startup land. And I think just in general, it's an impossible job. Nobody can do it. Very few people can survive. Like, you know, that's CEOs get fired all the time, et cetera. Like, it just seems like uh, it's just not, it's not a sustainable thing. And if you look at like, actually a lot of small businesses that are partnerships or you know family run businesses that run for 50 80 100 years i think they do so because a lot of the stuff that i'm describing is just the way it's done like you you don't have one person with all the singular responsibility of doing everything i just can't i mean and listen i don't really know that but i think about even like i don't know you know the 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 large independent hardware store that's been there for a hundred years and does a lot of business and has like a contractor business that that's probably a family. There's roles and responsibilities amongst that family and it works for a sustainable amount of time versus the startup model, the VC backed model where it's churn and burn. And like you almost have to sell the business, not only because that's the way the economics are made up, but because nobody at the top of that organization could do it for more than seven, eight, 10 years. So we move into the next round. Talk about your headspace when you're at that open view round and you're trying to figure that out. And at that point, you're also more experienced with the market, the potential for the product. You have changed your role in the company by that point. And you've also had more experience with the VCs and knowing what type of relationships you've had up to that point, what type of relationships you turned down up to that point. And now you've got this decision to make around a company like OpenView, who if you've already said is, this is not their typical investment. What were the things that you were thinking as you were going into that round about how you were gonna handle that? Were you thinking things like, this isn't typical for them, so should I walk? Or is that, you know, are, they, are, are we gonna be the baby of the group and maybe they'll coddle us a little bit more and look after us and, 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 and provide us a little more help type things? I think I did think, I think the latter is, is something that was at least in, like in the back of my mind or in my subconscious was like, oh, but like, they know we're really early here. So we're just gonna like, yeah, like cuddle us and take, yeah, I, I think that was a big part of a big part of my thinking. I don't, you know, again, it was my first business, my first, like my first, so, so many things. Like I actually didn't really know how hard it was going to be to go from $0 in revenue to a million dollars in recurring revenue. Like I didn't know. So I think I thought that we were kind of skipping a step by virtue of partnering with OpenView, not recognizing that like they don't, they don't have like a magic pill or something that's going to figure all this stuff out. But it was pretty quick that I think I started to realize like, uh-oh, it feels like we're focusing on stuff that we really shouldn't be focusing on, but I can't really tell them that because we just did this deal. And like, I don't know if we should be hiring this 
head of marketing and this head of this and this head of that yet. Cause we, you know, as you know, like we were still trying to figure out what is the hook in this product that makes it so that like people can't not, people couldn't give it up. Right. Um, right. So, you know, again, and, and I, and I think it only in retrospect now, having been away from it for a couple of years and now starting something new, do I have like the both emotional and just emotional intelligence and just intelligence, intelligence, or just like experiential intelligence to recognize that it will be incredibly important for me to be smart about telling investors no, or, or, or explaining why something saying no is, is not necessarily useful, but explaining why, certain things can't shouldn't happen right now or should happen right now and doing that from the perspective of again somebody who's made the mistakes of trying to do things in the wrong order to, to some extent and i guess maybe maybe that's a broader point as well for anybody listening to this you know and you hear this a lot but like the investor is there the investor's there first and foremost to make a return on their money the good news is is making a return on their money is typically aligned with you the entrepreneur to build a big business right other than that they're just there to be supportive of building a big business. An investor that tells you what to do is not doing a good job investing. Uh, an entrepreneur that just gets told what to do is not doing a good job running the business. It is definitely your job, your right, you know, your it's what you should be doing, which is helping the investor understand the dynamics of the business, explain to the investor the decisions that you're making, and then asking them for their input on the things where you need their input. Not waiting for them to tell you what to do. That is never going to work, frankly. You know your market, your product, your team, you know it's like a gazillion times better than anybody who just happens to be on the cap table by virtue of writing a check. So how do you manage that mentality, which I think is absolutely accurate, in the boardroom where <laughs> it's a little different? It's the same people, but the conversation yeah. is it's a little a, different. It's an interesting point. I actually, you know, I have to give this some more thought, but um, I am not sure that the way that boards, you know, I am sure actually, I just don't know what the right answer is yet, but, but I'll stay tuned, I guess. Boards aren't constructed the right way for these early stage startups. The board becomes maybe two of the founders of the company plus two VCs and maybe an independent, um, an independent board member. But the reality is, is that the the alphas in the room are the VCs because they go to 10 board meetings a quarter, 20 board meetings a quarter. That's all they do, right? I shouldn't say that. It's not all they do, but it's a huge component of their jobs. You've got entrepreneurs who've never been in a boardroom before or a board meeting before. And suddenly they're the CEO of a startup and they're running a board meeting and they don't know how to do that necessarily. And they're not being coached on how to do that. And the dynamic, of course, is that what a board meeting should be about is making sure, being supportive of the CEO, assuming the CEO is doing the right thing by the, by the shareholders and the company. But really the board meeting is, the, the, board, the board meeting exists to provide the high level support to the CEO and ultimately the team to make progress quarter over quarter, year over year. Like that is, that is the point of the board meeting, but the board meeting becomes a reporting meeting, unfortunately. And it becomes a like, let me show you my homework and how well I did. It's bullshit. It's garbage. And so, like, I believe that the way that you change that dynamic is you change the you change who sits in that room, and it will it requires the I would say mature and confident investor to agree with me and say, you know what, I'm not going to take a board seat. I'm going to I'm going to own a board seat by you know own the control of a board seat, 
but I'm going to appoint someone who can really help this company, an operator, whatever it is, and I'm going to put them in that board seat on my behalf. And ultimately, of course, like that person, if, if, the, if that person believes that the CEO's not doing a good job or the company's way off track, they're going to report back to that investor as they should, back to that shareholder as they should. But yeah, the dynamics of a boardroom with really experienced VCs and really inexperienced entrepreneurs sucks. I don't think it's helpful to these companies. I don't disagree with you. So now you're raising money for a new idea. Yeah. And I don't have like intimate knowledge about it, but I did see like the early decks of Fieldlands. And I've seen the early decks of your new idea, and they are not the same quality. Uh, <laughs> you learned an excessive amount from, from between the, the beginning of the first one to the beginning of the second one. What other lessons are you bringing to the table in that? And I'm sure because you're also, at the same time, you're dealing with individuals that are your partners that are not as experienced in this circle as you are and are largely... I would assume leaning on you to mm -hmm. kind of set the pace and, and, and the, you know, what emotions are we supposed to be having right now, Doug? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know, so what are you, what, what are you bringing uh, from your experience to, to make this a smoother process? And certainly expectation setting for all of us, including myself and like kind of repeating the mantra to myself, which is that like all the stuff I've already been talking about, doesn't matter how good this idea is. Doesn't matter how good this team is. We're going to get told no. We're going to get the shit beat out of us for like three or four months. It's exactly what happened. And then suddenly people started saying yes, right? And now people are saying yes, actually more yeses than we can potentially handle. And like the emotionality through the process has been significantly easier for me. And I think significantly easier for the other folks on the team because I've been saying it from the beginning. This is how this is going to go. <laughs> um, we actually literally set dates that came through within days of, of, of themselves in terms of milestones for raising capital. And maybe some of that was like self-fulfilling to some extent, you know, you set, a, you set a milestone and you usually try to hit it. But also it was just indicative of understanding of like how long things are gonna take. I would say in addition to that, like certainly yes, understanding how to tell a story that is compelling related to a business concept, that is fairly uniform across different types of businesses. I can probably give me a couple of weeks with an entrepreneur or somebody who's working on a business idea, I can probably make a lot of impact on helping them really refine the story they're telling. Because that is something that I have basically been doing for 10 years, right? Which is like, there is this problem. We have this unique solution. We are the people who solve this problem because of A, B, and C. There are a lot of people with this problem, i.e. market size. Like, and so like understanding that stuff and like you can download a million templates from the internet. And it's just simply not the same as being able to have like an active discussion with somebody who's been there, done that. I'm actually advising a woman who's building a business in the gaming world. I don't know anything about online gaming. She is building something specifically related to uh, the issues in gaming relative to the way that women, uh, people of color, uh, people of different sexual preferences are abused in the gaming industry. I know that that exists. I think it sucks. I know nothing about it. I'm really able to help her build her deck. Because like I can ask the right questions and help her define define that story that I was describing. So certainly yes, like I'm much 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 better about that as well. I would say the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I the way that I think I'm adding value right now in, as the new company gets built is certainly what I just described in terms of like really understanding how to tell that story. Uh, and there's other people on the team that are very good at that as well. Understanding like the cadence of how it's going to go. Like I've seen this movie before. It's like a horror movie. 
this, you know, this is like the third generation of the horror movie. I mean, there's going to be four, five, six, seven, eight more of these movies, but they're all kind of the same. I know how this is going to go. And like, we're going to survive, but it's not going to be until the very end that we get to survive, right? To make it onto the next movie. So I know that part, which is helpful from an emotionality perspective for both myself and the team. The other thing that I did mention earlier that I am sticking to with respect to building this, this new one is roles and responsibilities and not trying to do everything, which to me, probably the biggest lesson I've had over the last decade. I want to cut in here one more time. As Doug mentioned, the, the fundraising journey depends a lot on the story that you're telling, but those stories are important for other reasons as well. There's the story you tell the investors, the story you tell potential customers, and the story you tell the team. I asked Doug to talk about what he felt was the most important piece about figuring out which story you should be telling. Personas, I think, are incredibly important. When I say persona, I mean, like, who are we serving? And it can't be we're serving Fred, Alex, Mary, Mark, and Bethany. And they're all, and they all have these different jobs. It just can't be. Like, who are we serving? Who is the person and the problem they have that we're going to solve and crush the solution on that? And if you can get that persona right and really serve that person, the storytelling that can come out of that, and ultimately you will be able to support and serve other personas. But if you can really nail that from the beginning, it's crucial to all of the stuff that we're talking about. Like, how do you align the team around a persona and their problem and get let them like literally get to know who that human being is and what her problem is, right? How do you align an investor? Same way. How do you align a customer? A customer that has that persona, they know that person's problems as well. And like, I'm here to solve that person's problems. That's why we're here today, right? So I, I'm, this is like another, I guess another one of the big learnings is like, figure out who that person is. It can't be an industry set of problems or a company set of problems. Like you have to start with, there is a human being that is in pain every day whether it's financial pain or productivity pain, whatever it is. I mean, I'm, and I'm obviously bending towards enterprise stuff right now or you know, business stuff, but figure out who that person is, figure out what their problem is, figure out how to communicate with that person and figure out ultimately how to solve that problem for them in a simple and elegant way. And a lot of the other stuff that we're talking about will follow. When you're raising this time, how much of the network that you've built to date is coming are the yeses coming from that or are they coming from different people because it's a different idea and you've got different strategies yeah the uh so saying it very bluntly no's came from the people in my network no's came because it's a different business model in a different market that is not for them um and the no's came with a i really want to invest in you again i cannot do it with this company which was tough to hear but actually what it allowed us to do is to pivot into people that we don't know for the most part, but who come from a different world that is more relatable to the world that we are entering uh, with respect to this new business. And all of the experiences of the past, and frankly, all of my relationships have been extremely helpful in making that much more of an efficient process as we pitch those folks, because those folks do want to put money to work in this type of business. And so when they meet us, they're like, okay, you guys have You've done this before. You've done multiple versions of this before. You know how to build a business. Like check box boxes are checked. Boxes are checked. Yeah. So like relation. Yeah, it's interesting. Relationships are super important, but I would not expect a relationship to write a check to you unless all the other stars align as well. Uh, it's still on you to to be able to check the rest of those boxes. 
we're talking to the the listener now that it's like this is their first round and it's just them. They haven't convinced a friend or ex-coworker or whatever, but they've got a strong enough idea in their mind where they think it's worth pursuing and raising money to bring other people into the fold and trying to take a stab at it. What's the one piece of advice that you're going to give them that's going to get them out of their chair and get them actually doing something as opposed to just you know, getting stuck in planning phase for the next decade. Convince one of those friends to join you. Because if you can't convince one of those friends to join you, you're never getting a dollar. Normally, this is the part where I would uh, give you all the internet handles and latest things that a guest is promoting, but Doug's a little behind the scenes on the project that he has right now. He's not quite ready to bring it to uh, everyone's attention. So. If you want to learn more about Doug, you're just going to have to wait. If you want to learn more about the Blue Collar Business School, you can always go to www.bluecollar.business or you can find more episodes of the podcast on your favorite podcast service. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.